This message was recorded during a conference for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Our coffee up for the morning. Um, let me get myself set up. So Sherry graciously gave me her Bible because I left it in the airport in my car a day ago, which is not good coming to a women's conference and not having your Bible with you. Um, and I would use my phone, except my, this is the old age getting to you. I can't see clearly to even use my phone. You guys will be having a hard time watching me. So I get the, shall I say, privilege of talking about envy. I'm not sure if that's a privilege or a curse, but it's something I know that we all, we all struggle with, right? Um, let me start, actually. I'm going to be reading, we're going to be talking about Psalm 73. So if you have it on um, any electronic device or your Bible, if you want to bring it up and read with me. Isaiah 73. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet almost stumbled, my steps nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Lofty they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongues struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is their knowledge of the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed too wearisome of a task. Until I went in the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall into ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And is there nothing on earth I desire besides you? My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge, that I may tell of all of your works." I love Psalm 73. Um, we can go to the next slide. I have to check. So what, what does Psalm 73 say about enemy? Our title is Enemy, Contentment's Arch Enemy. 
here is a great psalm, and I love the psalms because the psalms often name the silences of our heart, don't they? They name the thoughts, the emotions that sometimes we don't feel like we can name in front of people and admit, but Scripture is not silent on these things. It gives us freedom to express the struggles that we all have. So here's a psalm that says, I envied. I, my feet almost slipped. And the irony, if you look at it, it starts, the whole psalm starts with saying, God is good. Yes, God is good, but, what was the but? My feet almost slipped because I envied the wicked, because I looked around at what others had and what I saw, and life seemed easy. Do you ever feel that way? Do you ever feel like you look around and other people's lives feel so much easier than yours? Uh, They look more attractive, they seem to have it together, they seem to be successful or thriving, life is going great for them and we begin to envy. Envy moves us from contentment to discontentment, right? It moves us towards believing God is good, towards not believing he's good. So he says, my feet had almost slipped. They seem to have no troubles and thrive. You know, by the way, I could get off on a tangent here, but social media gives us that, doesn't it? Social media makes everybody in this room look like we have no troubles and that we're all thriving. And we all are on it and we're all believing the lie that everybody else's life is better than ours. And we present, we put on a certain face that isolates us from others. And I'll come back to that in a minute. It says they're arrogant and proud. They taunt God. They say, how can God know? Look at me. My life's going well. They're wicked, they're carefree, they seem to increase in wealth. And whenever we start looking at others as a a source of identity, as a source of value, as a source of comparison, whenever we do that, what happens? We doubt God's goodness, do we not? We start believing that somehow something good is being withheld from us. He says, have I lived in vain? Have I kept my heart pure in vain? It felt oppressive. Think for a minute, who or what tends to be the things you guys envy? Where does envy threaten to creep up in your own heart and life? We can go to the next slide. Maybe we even have to say, what is envy? Though I'm assuming most of us in this room don't have to go very far to understand that. Envy, it arises when we see somebody else thrive. And maybe when we think we're not thriving. Or maybe we're thriving, but we see someone else who seems to be thriving just a little bit more. And so we feel envious of them. It can be things such as appearance, success, promotion, status, giftings, right, or skills. It can be material possessions. The thing about envy is it's not impersonal, it's very personal. It's always connected to something we wish we had or we wish we didn't have, perhaps, even. Let's try to make it really practical. I I love picking on my children. That's the nice thing when you're a parent is I can talk about their sin and not my sin for a while, right? So I'll talk about their sin for a little bit. So one of my sons has what I call the gift of envy. He, from a little guy just demonstrated this, this envious nature about him. And we all do, but he's just very bold about acknowledging it. And when our kids were little, um, here's another sidetrack, that commercials 
The mass media advertising exists to make you and I envy, does it not? It's not there to tell you you're beautiful, you are wonderful, your life's perfect, you don't need our stuff, don't buy it. It's there to make you feel there's a need, to make you feel you're missing out, to make you feel your life cannot be complete without this lipstick or without this scarf or without this new iPhone, right? So when our kids were really young, we would let them watch cartoons, and we would actually pause the commercials. When I got to commercials, I would try to intentionally pause them because commercials, in my mind, just, they brewed envy and discontentment and um, a lusting of the flesh. And inevitably, you can't pause all the commercials all the time. So we would start talking to our kids about commercials and say, what do you think's going on here? Um, We talk at nauseam to our kids, they will tell you. And so when they were little, we started talking about commercials, and commercials exist because they want to convince you that you, to be happy, have to buy this toy, or you have to buy this new electronic. And so we would have conversations about what they would see on TV, and hey guys, when you see that, it breaks like in a day, it doesn't last, it satisfies you in a moment, and then it's gone the next. It is meant to make you think you can't be happy without this thing. So fast forward, uh, months later, a year later, my my two boys, who are now teenagers, they were little, um, maybe seven and eight, and they were in the living room, and I was in another room, and I overheard the conversation, and what my son William normally says is, oh, I so want that thing. I so want that. So a commercial comes on, and he is right there, glued to the TV, oh, I so want that. Um, And you have his brother with this little squeaky voice in the background going, William, it's going to break in a day, and it's not going to last, and it won't be worth it, and then you'll have no money, and then you're not going to be happy. I'm like, good for you, Andrew. Somebody in this house is listening to me. (laughs) Nobody else is, but Andrew's listening. He's getting it. So fast forward, William, um, he's now 12 or 13. He's actually older than that, but he's about 12 or 13, and he and my husband were on YouTube watching this motorcycle racing that happened somewhere in the country. I should know this, and I still don't, but it's this big thing. My husband was totally into it. He was showing it to the boys. They're all crowded around the computer watching it and just enthralled with the fast-paced motorcycles and how high-tech they are and how awesome. And so they're all having this conversation. And as they're watching, in dead silence, out of nowhere, William says... And he says it like an old English Elizabethan language. He says, I tell you this day, I shall have that motorcycle. (laughs) So here it is, years later, I'm going, there it is. He's got the gift of envy. (laughs) He is so intense in what he sees. And you know what? That's really all of us. That's why I can make fun of him, because that's you and me, right? We all do that. We all look to others, just some of us are, are quiet enough to keep it inside and to externalize it. But what I love about him is you know what you see is what you get, um, and it's out there. Now I'll turn to me for a minute. Well, no, let me stick with the kids for a minute. You know, the other place I see this is after Christmas, right? If any of your kids, especially if they're in any kind of school settings, it is, I expect it now every year for them to come home the first day back from school after a Christmas break and say, Mom, you don't love us. <laughs> okay, why don't I love you today? Because everybody in my class has an iPhone. Now, this is my third grader telling me this, by the way. <laughs> and sadly, he might actually be right, I don't know. But you know, kids, you know, everybody has an iPhone but me. Why do you have to be so mean? I don't know, honey, it just comes natural to me. Um, <laughs> 
Does everybody really have an iPhone? Well, Billy, he's only in first grade. He's a year, two years younger than me, and he's got an iPhone, and he's allowed to play. There's this, this sense of, I am missing out when I see what other people have. So he could go into Christmas break totally happy that I bought him a transformer, and I got him this newest um, remote control car, but he goes back to school and comes home utterly discontent that I didn't get him an iPhone. Isn't that how our hearts work? I mean, think even in simple ways. Here's where I'll, I'll move it more personally. I'll never forget, this was years ago, I was traveling somewhere to speak, and I was, I was driving down the highway, and I am a cappuccino junkie, if there ever were one. I love frothy, foamy cappuccinos. And so I get on the highway, and I pass by, you know, every five miles there's a Starbucks sign, and I pass by, I'm like, oh, that sounds good, but I just drank two cups of coffee, I'm just getting on the road, I really don't need to stop for a Starbucks, so I keep going. Five miles later, what do you see? You see another rest stop and a Starbucks sign, and I'm like, hmm, no, I don't need a Starbucks, I just had coffee. Five miles later, there's another one, and I could slowly see the strength of my will slighten as the, the miles went by, till I got to the fourth or fifth Starbucks sign, and I'm like, okay, if I see another Starbucks sign, I will take that as a sign I should stop for coffee. <laughs> really? And so sure enough, I stopped. But it was very humorous to even watch my own heart go from, I don't need it, I'm fine, to, I think I need it, to, I must stop for it. Um, and that's how envy works, right? That even when we are totally content, we can get our focus off of what it is that brings contentment and onto things that don't last. I love home. I love fixing up my home. I love painting. I love decorating. I'm totally into those things. So I like getting magazines about that. It could be a Better Homes and Gardens. It could be um, landscaping. That, those things give me delight. I love flipping through them. However, what happens when you begin flipping through million-dollar homes that have beautiful finishes and nice Better Homes and Gardens? Better than whose? Well, better than mine. Better than yours. <laughs> That's meant to make us envious, right? It's meant to say, your home is not enough. Your home is pretty crappy, actually, and you've got five kids messing it up every day, so you really need, you really need to get rid of all your kids and your husband and your pets, and then you can have this beautiful house, right? And I'm, I'm joking, but think about that for a minute. I mean, my husband and I have these conversations all the time, like, maybe, maybe, we'll, maybe we'll redo the basement someday. No, the kids are just going to mess it up. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll do this. And you start getting discontent. We have these wonderful gifts in our life called five little people, or six at any given time. That's another story I'll tell you in a minute. We, we have family. We value. We love. I, um, I'm an animal lover, for any of you who haven't heard me speak. If you have, then it's abundantly clear. I collect broken things. I collect stray animals and stray kids and stray people, and we open our home, and our home is meant to be ministry intentionally. Um, but you can't open your home to ministry and have a perfect home. You can't open your home to brokenness and expect your home to be tidy and neat and organized all the time. So do you see how values, Christ-given values that God gives us, can slowly decay into envy when we've set our eyes on the wrong things? when my heart longs for something that isn't God's will, that isn't uh, in the center of who he's called us to be, we begin envying things that are important. And I begin 
being discontent, even disliking the things that are good in my life, right? So how, how sad it would be to say, I see my children as an inconvenience to a nice, perfect home in better homes and gardens. That's what envy does. It shifts us away from the things that are really of value and meaning in our life and moves us towards the things we see here in Psalms that the wicked, uh, the wicked don't value. We can go to the next slide. So envy, think about that for a minute. So the things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of God's glory and grace. I love that song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, because what it says is that the more we fix our eyes on Jesus, the more we are oriented, the more we are steeped in those things that truly value. But when we take our eyes off of the Lord and onto the things of this world, what happens? We are filled with envy, um, and we begin isolating. So relationship here is really important. Think of us as women. We most are known to be fairly relational. We move towards each other unless we envy each other. So think how envy works in relationships. Envy isolates us because we can only see others through what they have or what we want from them. Think about that for a minute. We can only see others through what they have or what we want from them. You are no longer somebody I can be vulnerable with and know because I'm threatened by you or because I'm envious of you. It enslaves us to an image or what others think of my image. So maybe that shift from I need to somehow show that I have a nice home or I have a nice family or my kids are ideal or I'm succeeding or I'm thriving in ministry, whatever it might be, it makes us begin to put out an image, or we are more committed to presenting an image than we are in really being transparent and vulnerable and known from, from, for and with one another. It prevents us from being humble and vulnerable. It destroys relationship. It separates you from me. It's kind of like I, I like, um, I often talk on body image issues and social media type stuff, and I compare it to a mirror, putting a mirror in front of you and saying, you and I can so often live in a room full of mirrors um, where we only can see others through the lens in which they see us. And we are living in an age where that is more true than ever because of social media, that there is always a projected image that we want to put out there, whether it's on Twitter or Facebook or whatever it might be. We always try to present a certain way of looking, but what that does is it makes me more committed to the image I'm putting out there than it does to really being known and vulnerable. It, it gets, is diametrically opposed to the values in scripture of accountability and one another and brokenness and weakness. So it isolates us, it separates you from me. We tend to become obsessed ranking each other and we seek to be admired by comparison. There's this wonderful book by Max Licato called You Are Special. It's a children's book, um, and it's about these little wooden people called the Wemmicks. And he talks about how these little wooden people, they go around all day sticking stars or dots on each other. So these wooden people, if they can jump high or sing well, people will come up to them and put a star on them. Um, or if your paint is chipped or you fall in the mud, they come and they put a gray dot on you. And so the story goes that all day long they're putting stars or dots on one another. That is very much what we do in our culture, is it not? It's very much what we do in the church. 
We go around sticking stars or dots on each other. And what I love about the book is so um, this one little this one little wooden person named Punchinello finds a, a girl who has no stickers. And he says, how, how come you don't have any stickers? People would try to come up and give her a star and it would fall off. People would try to come up and give her a dot and it would fall off. And he goes, I, I want to be like that. I don't want anybody's marks. How, how do you do that? And she said, well, go see Eli, the woodcarver. He created you. So Punchinello, this wooden guy, goes up and he sees Eli, and ha he has this interchange with Eli and says, I met, I met a wooden person with no stars or dots. Why don't the stickers stick? And Eli says, the stickers only stick if you let them. The stickers only stick if you let them. The more you trust in my love, the less you care what other people think. What a profound statement. Think about that. You and I, there will always be people sticking stars or dots on us. There will always be the temptation for us to stick stars and dots on each other. But the stickers only stick if we let them. Why? Because the more you and I find identity in who God made us, the more we are comfortable in saying he is good, he has made and given me enough, the less I care about the world around me, the less I care about the stickers other people have or they don't have, and the more I trust God's goodness. We can go to the next slide. So what kind of stickers do we stick on each other? Achievement, status, attractiveness, finances. You know, what's interesting, though, is in the church, we do the exact same thing. We just try to put more Christianized versions on it. Things like marital status, right? Or how many children you have, or how you educate your children, or ministry accomplishments, or giftedness. Don't we tend to covet people who look like they have these great gifts or these public giftings and wish we were more like them? All these things that threaten to convince us that my life is not enough, that it's not, God's not good. He's withholding something good from me. Years ago, I think it was probably a good 10 years ago, uh, Dove put out this campaign called Real Beauty. Probably many of you guys remember the commercials. Really, really neat commercials. You can go on YouTube and Google it, and they'll still be on there for you. Just these really sweet commercials trying to convince women, you are good enough. You don't need to buy into unrealistic beauty standards, the world's beauty standards, um, that accept different ethnicities, diversity, body image types, weights, ages, just... They went into a two-year study, 3,300 different countries and age ranges of women, trying to really study and understand what made a difference for them. The interesting thing, though, is after this two years of doing all this and putting forth all these great commercials, I mean, tearjerker commercials, some of them, what they found is their sales actually declined over a two-year period. Why? Why would somebody... And a advertisement industry, a company specifically marketing the message, you are fine the way you are, why would their sales decline? Because we bought the lie. We believed it was better to envy and covet what we don't have than embrace who we were and what we did have. You know, at the end of the day, that's void of God too, isn't it? You know, I'm not just okay just because I'm okay. I have worth and value and identity because I'm a child of the, of the living God. I'm a child that I am an image bearer made in his image. He is what gives me worth. He is what 
and, and uh, dwells within me and changes me. And anything, anything void of God is not going to be lasting. But here the world was even acknowledging, wait a minute, we don't want to be defined by appearance. We don't want to be defend, defined by material possessions. And what happened? People rejected it because it was better to envy. It was better to say, I want these things and they'll make me better than to try to embrace being weak and broken. You can go to the next slide. So the Bible acknowledges that great and small exist in every exchange of life. How quickly you and I take God-ordained differences and they become tools that we use to measure each other. The only way you and I can really give up, give up envy, is by saying, I'm okay, I trust that what God's given me is enough, that he is good. We can go to the next slide. So what's the lie? <clears throat> the lie is, is God really good? And here in Psalm 73, we keep going back to this, that we looked at the way of the wicked. And if we're honest, it's not always the wicked we're envying. It's sometimes each other. It's sometimes the people right next to us, people we love most, we're envying. Because what we're doing is, again, we're taking, we're taking our eyes off of the Lord and onto this world and onto what we think others find valuable. The lie is that something good has been given to another that's been withheld from me. And again, we question over and over again. We see this from Revelation to Genesis, from Genesis to Revelation, I should say. We see envy makes everything run amok. We envy birthrights. We envy inheritances. We envy blessings. We envy somebody else's wife. We envy how many children they have or not having children. This is the story of Scripture, that when we cease to find value and worth in the Lord, in our relationship with Him, that it spreads out to what other people say and do, that it leads us astray, that our hearts are prone to wander. One of my colleagues, Ed Welch, just recently came out with this book called Created to Draw Near. If you have not read it, um, it's wonderful. I highly recommend that you get it, creating to draw near. And it's all about our life as God's royal priests and our identity, where our value and our identity comes from and how it's so steeped in the need to be near to our Lord in relationship with the Lord. And that's the theme that I hope you hear from Jannie, that you hope you hear from me, that what brings contentment is going to be the nearness of God in our lives. It's that He is our refuge. He is what gives us rest. That is the only thing that can truly satisfy. I'm going to read to you some things that are said in here because it gets right to this lie that we're talking about in Psalms. So he starts with talking about Adam and Eve, and he says, he, the serpent, said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Satan's first strategy was to imply that God is not good. The serpent massively overstated the original prohibition as a way to entice just the smallest movement in a human's position. Your parents are so strict, a 15-year-old student had just mentioned to her friends something about the restrictions on social media in her home. And this was one of the reactions. It sounds like your mom runs a prison. I couldn't live there. Well... I guess my mom is a little strict. There's the lie. Her mom had discussed the restrictions with her, and the two of them had even decided together on a wise policy. 
but the reaction from her friend raised small doubts about her mom's goodness. Satan is the accuser. Satan suggested that God fenced you in from every good thing and insists on a boring lifestyle that majors on self-denial. In other words, no fun should have been assigned in the Garden of Eden. His words settled in. The woman, Eve, said to the serpent, May we eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden? But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. The woman corrected the lie, so far so good, but she added, Neither shall you touch it. There it is. The serpent's extreme and blatant lie coaxed her to mildly overstate God's command and question God's goodness. Her response essentially was, God is not mean, he's just a little stingy and maybe a little picky. The course had been set, discernment was fading fast, she was so vulnerable to the serpent's next strategy suggesting that sin is not bad. When you bend the rules, Satan suggests that you might rise to new realms of pleasure and insight. And again, isn't that what envy does? Think, think again for a moment the things you tend to envy. It makes you believe that if you were to have those things, your life would be better, that you would have pleasure, that you would have more insight. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. His words again left their mark. The tree caught her eye in a new way. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and that was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise. Before priests could protect the holiness of the garden temple, they first had to learn to protect their own hearts. The serpent's goal is for humanity to be remade in his image and imitate him. His twofold strategy remains the most prominent and effective weapon even today. Every failed spiritual test can be traced to our agreement with him on these two lies. Go ahead, he says. You will like it. Rest in your own understanding. Look at the evidence. God is not that good. Sin is not that bad. To put it bluntly, God is not good. Sin is good. There's the lie that you and I face over and over again. How in the world can we ever live contented lives if we regularly believe that God's not good, that he's withholding something good from us? It's so incredibly challenging to do. We can go to the next slide. I love C.S. Lewis, so again, Janie opened that door up for me last night by quoting him. He says this, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. I love that picture that you and I, when we look at the things of the world, when we look at the things of people around us, and I say, if I only had that, if I only had the latest technology or the nicer home, or if I was only gifted like that person and had their lifestyle, it's like me sitting in the mud, playing in the mud, and over here, God has this banquet feast waiting for me. 
but I'd much rather go to this because this is all that we can imagine. We are far too easily pleased. We're not expecting too much from God. We're expecting far too little. We are pursuing what is corrupted rather than what is created. One of the things I love to say when I'm teaching is, God creates, the world corrupts. God creates sex, the world corrupts it. God created in a beautiful, wonderful, holy way where it's meant to bring pleasure and goodness. He also created a way it's meant to work well. And anytime you go outside that way, it's corrupted. God created relationships. God created food. He created pleasure. And anytime we go outside the way he created it, it will not satisfy. It will be corrupted. You and I tend to only see what is corrupted. And that's what this world has to offer. They have nothing better than what's corrupted. They take the good thing, they corrupt it, and we end up playing in the mud saying, this is what I want. That's what envy does to us. Where the more we fix our eyes on Jesus, the more we believe that he who has the Lord lacks no good thing, the more we will be we'll be pleased. We will find pleasure and delight in that which God has to offer us. The other thing that Psalm says, though, that can be really challenging for us is it says, my feet almost slipped, but what happened? We can go to the next slide. It says, it was until I understood their destiny. Or to be honest, it should also say until we understand our destiny, which the Psalms does go on to say those things, that we live for something beyond this world. That we, again, when I go back to the Lewis quote, we're far too easily pleased. We don't have a vibrant, desirable picture of heaven and eternity, do we? And so we think, what in the world can heaven have that this world doesn't have to offer? Can you and I believe we would even say such a thing? The world is corrupted. Heaven is going to be glorious. It's going to be a new earth. It's going to be better than you and I can even fathom. And to fix our eyes on what is ahead of us. So he says, until I enter the presence of God, I love that, until I enter into his sanctuary. And what that means is the more I am the more I am in the presence of God, the more I am focused on him, the more I want him, the less I want what, what's corrupted, the less I want what this world has to offer. It says, God is good. He's always with me. He holds me. He guides me. He will take me to glory. He is all I have in need and desire. He's my strength. He's my portion. It is good to be near God. God is my refuge. How do we battle contentment? God has got to be our refuge. His nearness has got to be what we desire above all else because it sets our vision, doesn't it? It reorients us to what's really important and valuable. What brings contentment? What brings rest? Only when we find that we are okay, that what God's given me is enough in my brokenness, in my weakness. I love I love 2 Corinthians 4, where it says we have this treasure in jars of clay. Why? To show this all-surpassing power is of God, not of us. It's not, it's not me anymore. So I always have this picture, and I share this a lot. Um, I have this picture of this beautifully painted oriental vase that sits on a shelf. And we tend to as think of the Christian life that way, right? That we have to be this perfect presentation of a Christian. So even good things that run amok. 
beautifully painted oriental vase that sits on a shelf so that when people see it, they say, this is what a good Christian looks like. And then what does what does the New Testament say? It says, no, be a broken clay pot. And why? Because through those cracks and holes, Christ shines all the more brightly in my life. That in my weakness, he is strong. That his strength is made perfect in my weakness. And I never really understood that until I got that imagery that if you were to take this beautifully painted vase and put a candle in it, and you were to take a broken clay pot with cracks and holes and put a candle in it, and turn out the lights in the room, what's going to shine the more brightly? It's going to be the one with cracks and holes. Why? Because it's the light within that people are drawn to, not the external. And that's what you and I need to want to be. We need to say it's okay to be broken, it's okay to be weak, it's okay to not have everything this world has to offer because we have something nobody could ever take away from us. That the really good things in this world can never be removed from us. So what do we call good? And why are we believing the lie that it's good? C.S. Lewis also says in The Weight of Glory, It's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you'd be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet only in a nightmare. All day long, we are to some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. Envy, envy corrupts us. There's certainly no room for contentment in it, right? But it also prevents us from really loving each other. I love this idea that community relationships are about saying we want to encourage each other towards godliness. We want to encourage each other towards good things. We don't want to stick stars and dots on each other anymore. We want to give each other the freedom to be different and unique and weak and vulnerable and broken and to know that our worth and value rest only in a relationship with the Lord. So we take these things, not just for ourselves, but also to help each other move in that direction. That's what the body of Christ should do, should it not? I want you guys to do something for a, for a minute for me. I want to take a few moments and ask you guys some questions and have you ponder them. You can write them down if you want. You can just think about them. I want you to think... What do I feel envious of others? How do I feel envious of others? So what the Psalms does for us is it names the silences. It names what's in our hearts. I want you to think, what are ways that I tend to envy others? Where does envy capture my heart? Take a minute and think about that. Not only do I want you to think about that, I want you to pray about it. I want you to to confess it to the Lord, that for us to really say, Lord, I want to find contentment in you and you alone. I've got a name. Where are the places I don't? Lord, how do I confess that I am tempted to envy others? I am tempted to believe what they have is what I need to make me happy. So take a moment, just in your heart between you and the Lord, and think, what are Where are the places I envy? And Lord, where do I, how do I confess this to you? Take a minute.
Psalm 73 ends by saying, but for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge. I want you to take a minute and pray about what it would look like to make the Lord your refuge. How can you draw near to God or ask God to draw near to you? I love that it doesn't all rely on us, that we are even weak enough to know how to enter into God's presence. And God says, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. So take a minute or two and just pray silently that the Lord would show you what that looks like. Confess the places you struggle to believe the lie, the struggle to believe that God is good and ask the Lord to do that in you. And in a minute or two, I'll close this. Lord, our hearts are prone to wander. We are prone to, to look around at the mud pies that are offered in this world and want them and believe that, that we need them. Lord, help us to trust that those who seek you lack no good thing. Lord, that everything you have done for us is good, even in our weakness and our brokenness and our suffering and grief, Lord. You, your nearness is all we need. And would we realize that nothing that really matters, nothing in this world that is of true value can never, ever be taken from us. And Lord, would the things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. Amen. You've been listening to a conference given for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.